Let's turn to the book of Hosea, chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. As we began this a couple of weeks ago, just an introduction and then looking at the calling of Hosea as well as the word given to Hosea last week. It was a word, as we said, that came directly from the Lord to this prophet prophet whose name means salvation, Hosea. And it was certainly a word to a prophet that had to get a word out to the northern kingdom of Israel that had separated itself unto its own ways of doing things to the point that uh, they were worshiping other gods instead of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God gave them opportunity through prophets and the word to repent, and uh, they kept moving in that direction until the Lord had to bring judgment to them. What we're going to look at tonight is chapter 1 and its completion. As we look at this very strange, at least to many people, uh, command that God gave to Hosea. The command was, and it is given to us there in verse 2, that he was to go and take a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms. And the purpose for that was so that the land or, or because the land had committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. Three times we see that word whoredoms. And it reflected the attitude of the heart of the, of the people of the northern kingdom of Israel to forsake their God, not only as their God, but as their husband, as the one who was married to them in covenant, as we noticed last time, going all the way back to the covenant made by God to his people in the law. And so God is using these things as pictures, object lessons to the people and to us who follow, as we will see tonight very clearly. But I'd like to begin, since we did most of the history in verse 1, we can begin again in verse 2, and I want to read down through verse 5 to start our study this evening. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. And the Lord said unto him, Call his name 
Yezreel, or Yezreel. For yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Yezreel upon the house of Yehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Yezreel. We concluded in our last study that the northern kingdom of Israel had committed, had committed great sins against the Lord God of Israel in worshiping and serving other gods, primarily the gods of Baal, rather than in the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for this reason, they would be severely judged by God should they refuse to repent of such heinous sins. And don't just think that it was a matter of, of, of uh, idolatry because the religions of, of the Baal worshipers included, as in many religions in the ancient times and even today, included great sexual sins. And, and quite a few of them. Not only that, but it included also sacrifices of children unto the gods of Baal, such as the god of Molech that was offered children by fire. So understand how heinous it was to be participating in these kinds of sins. The leadership of Israel, or Ephraim, as we said last time, is another term for Israel in the north, the northern kingdom of Israel. The leadership of Israel itself had no ruler appointed by God except for one dynasty. One dynasty. And that was the dynasty of Yehu. Now, Jeroboam and, and, and Zechariah were part of this particular dynasty, but understand that after the deaths of Jeroboam and his son Zechariah, that dynasty would in fact die out, as told to Elijah the prophet, by the Lord himself. Now you remember when Elijah faced the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the groves that were actually brought together by Jezebel, the wife of Ahab. And he meets them there in Ezekiel, I'm, I'm sorry, in 1 Kings chapter 18, where he faces them on Mount Carmel, and uh, there he proves that God is God above every other God, all gods, calling down fire to consume uh, uh, an altar that was covered with water. And we know that story. We should. It was after this, of course, that Elijah hears of Jezebel wanting to take him and kill him, and he goes and hides. And now the very same Elijah that called down that fire from God is the very same one who ran from, from a woman, Jezebel. But all that aside, it is in chapter 19, during that particular time 
that God is ministering to Elijah, that he tells him these things in verse 15 following. It says, And the Lord said unto him, unto Elijah the prophet, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Interesting that he's told to go anoint a king for Syria. We're not going to deal with all of this tonight. And then in verse 16 it says, And Yehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, or Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room, or in thy place. After, you know, in other words, you were to pass the mantle on to Elisha, or Elisha. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Yehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Yehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. Well, to keep all of this short, all this was done to complete the purging of the worship of Baal through those three men, Hazael, Yehu, and Elisha, or Elisha, which was actually begun, actually, by the prophet Elijah and completed by Elisha. If you'll turn to 2 Kings chapter 9, and once again, these are just very fundamental, foundational things that we need to, uh, to look at before we press on into this chapter. In 2 Kings 9, verses 1 through 3, And Elisha, or Elisha the prophet, called one of the children of the prophets, and said unto him, Gird up thy loins, and take this box of oil in thine hand, and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when thou comest thither, look out there, Yehu the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him arise from up, up from among his brethren and carry him to an inner chamber and then take the box of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and tarry not. First of all, take, note, take notice of the means of the anointing of this particular person. It was a box of oil a box of oil or a container of oil made by man, man's hands, much like the flask of oil that was used to anoint Saul as king, in complete uh, distinction from the anointing of David, who was the true king, who was anointed with oil that came from a ram's horn, the ram's horn being that which was made by God. So just take note of that in the sense of how Yehu was anointed. But the point is that no king after that was directly appointed by the Lord to rule over the northern kingdom. No king was appointed by the Lord. No king had any divine authority whatsoever because that was reserved for those in the line of David. David who was a true king. David who was to have sons who were kings. But David was then the father of the one who was to be the king of Israel, who was the son of David, who we call the Messiah, or the Mashiach, the Messiah being Yeshua, Jesus himself. So their legitimacy to rule was apparently always doubted by some of the leaders of the nation, 
even Hosea the prophet himself, which is why, and this is again just reinforcement of verse 1, which led him to name all of the kings of the divinic dynasty that would eventually give birth to the Messiah or the Savior of the world. So one other thing that we concluded last time was that Hosea's wife, now as we get into verse 2, Hosea's wife was a prostitute. She was a harlot when he married her. We talked a little bit about that because some people say that she didn't, she wasn't a harlot until she became one. But the text is very clear. Marry a wife of whoredoms. So we talked about that last week. But the purposes of God being in all of this that through his wife's unfaithfulness, and we're going to see a little bit about that tonight, through his wife's unfaithfulness, it would not only change Hosea's life. I mean, because, I mean, he had a radical life after marrying this person, but he did it because he was commanded to by the Lord. It would not only change Hosea's life, but it would become the mirror by which the children of Israel would see their unfaithfulness to the God who created them to be light to the Gentiles, representing him to all the creation or to all of creation. So the result for Hosea was that through that tragic experience, he would learn, listen carefully, he would learn to tr uh, the true love of God for him. And you have to understand, if God says to you, go marry a wife of whoredoms, or says to anyone, or a man, go, go marry a wife of whoredoms, you would almost have to think, Lord, are you punishing me? But that wasn't the case here. You have to understand that in all of this experience, he is going to learn the true love of God for him, but especially for all that turned away from the Lord to false gods. God's love for them, his people. He didn't just love them one day and hate them the next. He may have hated the things they did. He may have hated, uh, hated the things that they were doing, hated the things that they were saying, hated the things that they were worshiping, but they did not stop loving them. We need to understand that. His marriage to this wife would be an object lesson, as we've said before, for the children of Israel. So then we get to verse 3. When he does go, he, so he went, and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. Now, th that phrase, bear him a son, is very significant here because, in fact, she bore him, Hosea, a son, which says this is Hosea's son through their intimacy. And so, Obediently, we know that Hosea married this woman whose name was Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. I said last week, names mean a lot in this, in this book, especially in this prophecy. The name Gomer, G-O-M-E-R, not Gomer like Gomer Pyle from the TV. It's Gomer. It comes from a word gamar in the Hebrew. And it means completion. But the full sense of that word is this. 
It means to cease, to fail, to come to an end as in the sense of a failed completion. That's what her name means, a failed completion. That pretty much describes Israel at this point in, in their history. Israel had failed. They had, it had split as a kingdom. They were no longer one kingdom as God intended. They were two kingdoms. And both were heading toward judgment. The northern kingdom before the southern, nonetheless, both were heading toward judgment. Her name is parabolic in the sense that it illustrates a spiritual or a moral truth. That of filling up the measure of Israel's idolatries and apostasies. They were filling more and more until they completely failed. What was the sign of their failure? It was their captivity by the Assyrians. But then you add to this name Gomer, the name of her father, Diblaim, and the last two letters, I am, always indicates plurals or a plural. So Diblaim, which literally means a double clump of figs or double fig cakes. I don't know if you like figs or not, but if you like figs, that sounds pretty tasty. So here is her father, a double clump of figs, double fig cakes. <laughs> that was his nickname, double fig cakes. When you put together with Gomer's name, that the suggestion is, you put these names together, and the suggestion is that she was a daughter of sensual pleasure or sensual sweetness, the sensual sweetness that can be found in sin. Diblaim, therefore, was the parent of all wrongdoing. Consider, if you will, the nature of one named Gomer, based on Proverbs chapter 5. Let's turn to Proverbs 5, and let's look at verses 3 through 5. Now, when you turn to Proverbs 5, and I want to turn there with you because I, I just want to point out the, the very beginning of that chapter, Solomon is speaking to his own son, and he says, My son, attend unto my wisdom, and, and bow thine ear to my understanding, that thou mayest regard discretion, and that thy lips may keep knowledge. Regard, uh, regard discretion. Be discreet about things. But then notice in verse 3, that's where we're going to start here. For the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb. In other words, the lips of a strange woman drip with honeycomb, drip with a sweetness of honey, drip with a sweetness of something that people really desire. And her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Interesting that that little phrase is taken later on in the New Testament and used in a good sense for the Word of God. 
But here, the tongue of a, of a strange woman, of a seductress, which is what harlots and prostitutes do. They work this angle of seduction and deception. And what looks as sweet to the taste will become very bitter and sharp. Instead of having the sharpness of a two-edged sword like the Word of God that cuts with conviction and, and, and on, the other, on the other blade heals with, with, uh, with, uh, with God's uh, healing, this cuts to hurt. The two-edged sword of, 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 of Satan cuts to kill. Notice verse 5, her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on hell. And, and, I, and I can tell you that we live in a time where the enemy is doing everything he can to make things look so seductive, so pleasing to the eyes. Sounds like Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? What Satan was using as, as the serpent in the garden <clears throat> to Eve and saying, you know, listen, look at that, look at that fruit on that tree. I mean, did God really say that, you know, if you eat it, you're going to die? You're not going to die. He got her to doubt God. He got her to deny that God uh, or, or is greater than, than, than she. And Satan got her to believe that she could be a God just like him. So listen, what happened? We all fell. Man fell. And what was once created to be eternal died. We died and began to die. Sin and temptation are deceptively sweet. But the end thereof is tragic. I want you to pay, a contra uh, pay attention to the contrast of this. Turn to Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16, verses 21 through 25. Proverbs 16. The wise in heart shall be called prudent. And the sweetness of the lips increases learning. Different kind of lips, different kind of heart. By the way, different kind of sweetness. A different kind of sweetness. The heart, the wise in heart shall be called prudent, and the sweetness of the lips increaseth learning. Understanding is a wellspring of life unto him that has it. You see, there's a sweetness that seduces, there's a sweetness that enriches. Paul talks about it in one, in one very beautiful statement in the book of Ephesians. He said, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Because that's how Jesus spoke. He spoke in his love. Did Jesus speak judgmental words to some? He did. But you don't think that with those words that he said to the scribes and the Pharisees and the hypocrites that he didn't say it with love for them? It was a painful love. It was a grieving love. Because these were people who should have recognized that he was Messiah, the Messiah. And they failed to see it. 
It goes on to say, by the way, understanding is a wellspring of life unto him that has it, but the instruction of fools is folly. In other words, the instruction of fools is foolishness. The heart of the wise teaches his mouth and addeth learning to his lips. What is the motivation of our hearts in this, in this life? If we're constantly being deceived and seduced by the thing, the sweetness of the world, the sweetness of the world is going to become bitter. The sweetness of the word of God. Jeremiah talks about it. I ate your word and it was sweet to my taste. Verse 24, pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. Don't forget what it says in, in, in Proverbs chapter 3 about that very same thing. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man. Now notice here the contrast. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are, are the ways of death. So it, so it comes right down to what we are then regarding discretion about. Are we really paying attention? Are we really being discerning about the things that we see, the things that we hear, the things that we do, the things that are done to attract us, to attract us or to detract us or to distract us? A lot of times the enemy wants to distract us. Keep us away from the things of God. Keep us away from the goodness of God. Keep us away from the trustworthiness of God. Keep us away from the wisdom of God. You know, we say God never sleeps on our behalf, but you know, the enemy doesn't sleep either. But he doesn't, he doesn't stay awake on our behalf. He stays awake to destroy us. And so getting back to Hosea, he marries Gomer. And in time, she presented the prophet with, his, with a son. Verse 4, Hosea chapter 1. And the Lord said unto him, Call his name Yezreel. We've already heard that name, haven't we? As a place. Call his name Yezreel. For yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Yisrael upon the house of Yehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass at that day, that's a prophetic statement, at that day, that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Yisrael. The Lord told him to call his name Yisrael, a name that can mean, as a couple of meanings, and we're going to find out that God actually uses this name in, in a way, a play of words uh, at the beginning and at the end of this chapter. So we'll, we'll see that in just a moment. But the name itself can mean may God scatter or God scatters, or it may mean may God sow or God sows, like sowing seed. May God scatter or may God sow. And it has connotations on, 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 in, in two different ways. Scattering can be a bad thing. The children of Israel scattered throughout all the nations after uh, Messiah had been rejected. 
It had been predicted. It had been prophesied they would scatter. God scatters his people, and then he will gather them together again. We'll talk about that. I'm getting ahead of myself. And when God sows, if he sows good seed, he sows, of course, something that will be planted and something that will grow. So those are the ideas here. So it all depends on the context of the, of the passage that lets us know how it is to be used. So if you go to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 10, the word is used for scattering or sowing Israel like seed. Jeremiah 31, verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel, will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. He that scattered Israel. Well, in that sense, you know, it is not just a sowing of a seed, it's more like scattering them out away from the land that God had promised them. But because of their sin, he has taken that away for a time. So just as Hosea marrying Gomer would be an object lesson, so would Hosea's children. In this case, their names would be object lessons of what God is saying to Israel. Yezreel was also a place. It was a city in the tribe of Issachar near Mount Gilboa and is associated with the severe judgment that Yehu executed on the family of Ahab. And we've talked about Ahab already. We've talked about Yehu already. More on that in just a moment. Israel was scattered because they had departed from the Lord and refused to return to him, and those who caused Israel to do so would be punished. In other words, their power would be broken. Just as it says the bow would be broken, the bow was a symbol of power. So enter King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, the uh, Jezebel, the, the dynamic demonic duo of the Hebrew scriptures. They were the ones who brought the northern kingdom of Israel into the worship of Baal. And the Lord was going to bring judgment upon them and would use Yehu to bring about that judgment. But Yehu went too far beyond just being the instrument of God that God was going to use, going far beyond the Lord's instructions. That's very similar to what would happen later on in the time of Nebuchadnezzar and the, his treatment of the children of Judah. And when they went too far in their, in their judgment, in, in, in what they did to the children of, of Judah, God said, I'm going to judge Babylon. This is the same concept here, same principle. Ahab was killed in battle against Syria, and Yoram became king. Then Yehu killed Yoram, king of Israel, and, and he killed Ahaziah, king of Judah, plus 42 of his relatives. They weren't even supposed to touch Judah. But he kills the king of Judah. And, and the bloodbath didn't end there. Ahab had 70 sons whom Yehu killed, cutting off their heads 
and bringing them to Yezreel, which would now be the site of this ruthless massacre. And if you want to read about it, it's in 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10. 2 Kings 9 and 10. So the Lord did avenge the bloodshed that took place in Yezreel. And we talked about these last time. When Shalom, or if you remember the name Shalom, assassinated Zechariah in 752 B.C. The fourth of Yehu's descendants and the last cutting off Yehu's dynasty forever. You can read about that in 2 Kings 15. As for Israel, it would eventually fall into captivity by the hands of the Assyrians in 722 BC. Again, all in the eighth century. We, we've talked about the importance of, of Hosea in the eighth century. The Yehu dynasty had been allowed to reign for generations because he had been zealous for God in taking the prophets of Baal and wiping them all out that uh, Ahab had gathered together. But the rest of his slaughter was too much, you see. The Lord was saying in this passage to Hosea, name your son Yezreel, remind them of the atrocity committed in the valley of Yezreel, the heads of the 70 sons of Ahab in a pile there, there in the place called Yezreel. But just one more thing to add about Yezreel. The place had a special significance in the history of Israel during the time of Ahab and Jezebel, especially in the account of Nabot, the Yezreelite who owned a vineyard near the palace and refused to sell it to Ahab. You go all the way back to 1 Kings 21 to read about that. Jezebel arranged it for Nabot to be murdered so that Ahab could take possession of the vineyard, of the vineyard that he coveted. The prophet Elijah denounced the act and foretold the doom of the guilty pair and their descendants, a doom realized at Yezreel, where Nabot had been killed. So both Ahab and Jezebel were taken there as well. And Jezebel, I believe, by a bunch of savage dogs. Let's go back to Hosea, chapter 1, verse 6. And she conceived again, that is, Gomer, and bear a daughter. Do you notice that this doesn't say bear a daughter to Hosea? So the understanding then would be that this may not have been Hosea's daughter, which brings to mind the fact that he had married a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms. And God said unto him, Call her name Loruhamah, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Lo, L-O, in Hebrew, even to this day, means no, or not, or some quote-unquote negative, you know, no, not. And, and so... Ruhama, ruhama is, is a, a word for either mercy or pity. 
or even love. And so no love, no mercy, no pity is what her name means. Poor girl has to live with that name the rest of her life. But God says, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Hosea settled down with his wife Gomer, but now there were doubts as to her faithfulness. And so he called his newborn daughter in obedience to the Lord, lo ruhama, which means, as I said, no mercy, or not beloved, or not obtained mercy. Not obtained mercy. Listen to the words of Peter from his first letter to the church. Uh, this, this is just to give you a, a, an idea of that phrase, not obtaining mercy. In 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12, Peter says to the church, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now a the people of God, notice this next phrase, which had not obtained mercy, Loruhama, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So when you consider our when you consider your life as a believer in Jesus Christ today, you were not born that way. You were not born in God's mercy in the, in the sense that you were born saved. All have sinned, the Bible says, Book of Romans. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Lo, not one. Dearly beloved, he goes on to say, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. This is what Israel was acting like, strangers and pilgrims. Were they? No, that was what they were supposed to be in this world. Because this wasn't their home. Yeah, that, that, was a, that was a test on your part. Okay. Just try to see if you're up with me here. They were making themselves at home in the world, taking the world's gods. Worshiping them. So when you compare this to those of us who have come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior because he's changed us, made us new creatures in Christ, the old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He says, dearly, dearly beloved, you are loved by God, number one. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, being aware that you're not of this world, abstain from fleshly lusts. Now what did we say about idolatry? Idolatry uh, throughout the ancient times all had some connection to all of this promiscuity and all of this uh, sexual uh, types of, of uh, rituals as part of their religion. He says, you're not of this world. The Jews were not of this world. 
as much as we were not of this world, or are not of this world. Abstain then from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation, your conduct honest among the Gentiles. Why? Because we are the light to the Gentiles. That whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. You who had not obtained mercy have now obtained mercy. But as an object lesson, the daughter of Hosea Loruama points out by her name that Israel had crossed over the line and now God's mercy had come to an end. Judgment was now coming to them by the hands of the Assyrians. The God who had loved his people and proved it in so many ways was withdrawing that love. Now please understand, God loves his people. God loves his people Israel. But he has to withdraw his love. No longer showing them mercy as part of that judgment, as part of that discipline, as part of that chastisement. You don't think it grieves God that he has to withdraw his mercies? Without doubt, God's love for Israel is certainly unconditional, but, but please understand this. God's love is unconditional for Israel but the enjoyment of that love, listen carefully, the enjoyment of that love is conditional and depends on our faith and our obedience. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 12. Verse 6 says, For thou art... Uh, for thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. You are a holy people, a set-apart people, a sanctified people, holy, set apart from God, or set apart from the world, set apart unto God. You are a holy, sanctified people. The Lord thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. They weren't. It goes on to say, for you were the fewest of all people. So there were a lot of heathens all around Israel, all around the children of Israel. But then it goes on to say, but because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God. Now what is he, what's being established here by Moses? What's being established is, listen, we have only one God. He is, I am. And there is no other. He is the faithful God, 
which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him, notice, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repayeth them that hate him to their face, to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. Now we have to be very careful if we say we love God, but we hate him by our actions. Just think about that for a moment. That's a heavy thought. We can say we love God, but we can hate him with our actions. Jesus talks about his Sermon on the Mount. Woe unto you. Those of you that say, you know, you call me Lord, but do not do the things that I say. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. Wherefore it shall come to pass if you hearken to these judgments and keep them and do them that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant the mercy and the mercy which he sware unto thy fathers. Now with that in mind, I want to compare this to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 14 through 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and it goes into verse 1 of chapter 7. Most of you are familiar with this. It says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, some people would probably criticize the Lord for saying, well, he made, he made, uh, he made Hosea, Mary Gomer, who was a prostitute. There was a reason. Remember that we saw that in, in Hosea 10, verse 12. That he's using all of these as signs, as symbols, illustrations for Israel to open their eyes. Give Hosea time to witness the love of God to Gomer. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial or Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? What agreement? For you are the temple of the living God. By the way, he's speaking to the church as a whole. You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean. The word thing there is, is, is in italics, so it's not there in the original Greek. It says, be separate and touch not the unclean. The very same thing that was told to Israel in the law. And I will receive you and, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore, verse 1 of chapter 7, having therefore these promises, dear beloved, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting or completing holiness in the fear of God. In the fear of God just says in respecting God, in honoring God, in bowing down to God, in worshiping God, 
and in holding God in awe above all things. Have we not made God too human at times? We call him the man upstairs. I say we, I don't think we do, but some people do that. You know, they want to be buddy-buddy with God. God's holy. God is holy. We talked about Isaiah and Job and Peter this past weekend. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips, for I have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So, what this is teaching us here is, even as believers in Jesus Christ, the importance of reverence and respect to God and to Christ. So now the Lord would allow the Assyrians, because of, of, of the attitude of the hearts of those who had left Jerusalem, had left the place that God said, worship me, and went to build their own place to worship strange gods as if it was their God. The Lord would allow the Assyrians to overwhelm and overcome the northern kingdom of Israel. But as we see in verse 7 of Hosea chapter 1, he would protect for a time the southern kingdom of Judah. Notice verse 7 now, Hosea 1. But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah and, I will, and will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. Judah, who had a good king and would have a succession of good kings, would be delivered from the fate that would overtake Israel. The Assyrians triumphed over Samaria, but when they uh, came beating on the gates of Jerusalem, that is, the Assyrian army under uh, Sennacherib, they were themselves overthrown. They were overthrown, not by Hezekiah's army, but by the Lord's direct intervention. This was accomplished and fulfilled in 701 BC when the Lord supernaturally annihilated 185,000 Assyrian troops in one night. By the way, you don't think God can do that still? And he ended a serious campaign that night against Judah. 2 Kings 19 says in verses 32 to 36, Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it, by the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. I'd be shouting. <laughs> That's something to shout about. For I will defend this city to save it, God says, for my own sake, and for my servant David's sake. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out 
and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred fourscore and five thousand. 185,000. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. Lastly, there was a third child born through, Go through Gomer, verse 8 through 11, verses 8 through 11. Now when she had weaned Loruhamah, she conceived. And by the way, weaning in those days took a long time, <laughs> two, three, four, sometimes five years. So it's no strange thing that she would wean Loruhama from her own milk. It says she conceived and bare a son. Again, no mention of Hosea, that she bore him a son, just bore a son. Then said God, God speaking, call his name Lo-Ami. What is Lo? No. This is your, your Hebrew lesson, okay? Y'all know Shalom. Now you know, no, lo, L-O, lo ami. By the way, the word for, for yes, y'all know what the word for yes in Hebrew is? Ken, just like the little doll next to Barbie. Ken, Ken is yes. Then said God, verse 9, call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I will not be your God. This, this is heavy. This is heavy. One little word like that, meaning that. Lo-Ami. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered, and it shall come to pass that in the... See, I'm, I'm kind of doing this because I'm thinking, whoa, you know, he's calling them not his people and all, but then he says, oh, but by the way, the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, You are the sons of the living God. And then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Yisrael. Wow. That's hard to read because, I mean, you're thinking, all right, he's saying they're not his people. Then he says, but you're going to be my people. Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? That's a good thing for Israel. But you've got to deal with the first verse there, verse 8. This third child, Lo-Ami, had a name given to him that meant not my people. Not only would God remove his mercy from his people, but he would renounce. And please understand this, not renounce completely or forever, but renounce. Just, just as he withdrew, withdrew that mercy, he renounces the covenant he had made with them. It was, it was 
for all intents and purposes, it was like a man divorcing his wife and turning his back on her. That's what this is. It was as if he was saying, and listen carefully, I am not I am to you. I am not I am to you. I will not be your God. The Lord was speaking of his covenant name, the great I am. What he gave to Moses back in the wilderness, in the Sinai. But notice what he says in verses 10 and 11. Again, he is giving them hope. He is giving them hope that one day they will be restored and that as one people. At this, at this point in time, they are two nations. But that was never God's intention. Man divided that nation. Man's sinfulness divided that nation. Man's disobedience to God divided that nation. Man's rebellion against God divided that nation. Man's sin and disobedience and rebellion divides families, divides couples, divides churches, divides communities. But God has given hope that they will be as one people once again. I want you just to remember this date. It's, it's the 70th anniversary. It's, it's 70th anniversary is only days away. Would you remember this date, May the 14th? Nineteen forty-eight. After two thousand years without a homeland, Israel became a nation again. One of the miracles of Israel becoming a nation again is that they revived the biblical language of Hebrew, and it became their national language something that had never happened with any other culture that had been scattered or eventually that had been assimilated into many other cultures and languages many times become lost. Hebrew was found and it became their language again, a miracle that only God could do. I was telling this to somebody the other day, but you know when you get to heaven, you know what we're all going to speak? Hebrew. That's just the way it is. So start learning it now. Ken? <laughs> okay. Well, I want to end with this passage here because of time. Ezekiel 37, verses 21 through 28. There it says, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, 
and one king shall be king to them all. You know who that king is? Yeshua, Jesus. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all, neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them, so shall they be my people and I will be their God. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. David, my servant? Yeshua. And they shall all, and they all shall have one shepherd. Ah, that's the, that's the clue. One shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The shepherd knows his sheep, and they are known of him. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Yaakov, Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. Now, that forever is a long time. I mean, forever is forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. How, how long is everlasting? Forever. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know, the nations in other words, the nations shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. The heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel. What's happening today in the United Nations? There's only attacks against Israel. That's not going to last, folks. The United Nations, as, as, a, as an organization, really doesn't represent all the people of the world because they can't. It's a joke sometimes. It's a farce sometimes. Maybe not sometimes, most of the time. But what's not a joke is that Jesus is coming again. And because he's coming again, and though he's coming for us as his, his, his bride and his church, he's coming to restore Israel to that place that we just read about. That's what he's coming to do because he loves his people and he loves them with an everlasting love. 
Because if he didn't, then he'd be a liar. And if he's a liar, then he's not God. Amen? All right, you're looking at me like I almost said something I was going to be struck by lightning about. No, no, I'm, 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 I'm clear. This is how much he loves Israel, his people. Does he love the Arabs? Of course he does. He wants them to come to know Jesus as well. Chinese, North Koreans, Iranians, the Iraqis. How many of them have already come to know Yeshua? How many? The numbers are growing. And even in Israel, Jews are finding their Messiah in Yeshua. Is he coming or not? I say he's coming. And I say he's coming pretty quick, so we better get ready. I know I tell you that, you might think, I, you know, enough already about it. No, I'm not, I'm not going to stop mm. telling you that Jesus is coming soon, okay? Just get ready. <laughs>